This morning, uh, we as a church are embarking, as our small groups did this last week, uh, for a, a, an eight-week uh, time frame uh, where we're going to look at how to manage our finances. And in our small groups, we're talking very practically of what that looks like through a series called Financial Peace University. Uh, and then as a uh, pulpit ministry at all of our four campuses, we're dedicating time to uh, devote some time and attention to speak on the subject of, of money and, and finance. Finances, but to do it from a different standpoint than just simply dollars and cents. We want to do so from the issue of trust. Now, before I get into that, I want you to know that I recognize that the second that a pastor talks about money, all kinds of walls go up, right? And there's all these ideas and thoughts as to why a pastor like myself or a church like Village would speak on the subject of money. And if you've been with us for some time, you will know that uh, this is not common for us. In fact, one of the probably greater omissions that I would publicly confess to you is that we probably don't preach about money uh, enough, not because we need money, but because I think our society really does struggle with that. And, uh, uh, and as a result of that, we need to hear the Lord's teaching with regards to it. I also want for those that are maybe newer to the church to recognize I'm not doing this to uh, garner higher offerings. In fact, uh, we finished across all four campuses with the highest level of giving um, in 2017 than ever before. And so this isn't some way to, if you will, gin up the offering. It is something that we believe, as Jesus says, is a heart issue. Uh, our heart is somehow, and I don't know the nerve that you would call it, the nerve that's connected from your heart to your pocketbook that, that tells you that we got to get worked up when we talk on the subject of money. But Jesus said that uh, we uh, will know where our heart is going when we look at the things that we treasure. And for many of us, we treasure money far more than we probably should. And this morning, Jesus uh, is wanting to uh, remind us that his word has a lot to say on the subject of money. But again, not right away going to that subject. Over the next couple weeks, as we kind of do a two-part series in these eight weeks, I want to talk on the issue of trusting God. Because I will tell you that no matter what it is, whether it's your money, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your children and your parenting, whether it's how you view work, if you don't trust God, you will never give him those things. Just think about it for a moment. If there's someone you don't trust in your life, I am pretty sure that you're probably not giving them a lot of intimate information, a lot of um, insight into what you're doing. And so some of us wonder, what's our issue? Why do we struggle with our finances? Why do we struggle in our parenting? And we're trying to do these things apart from God. And one of the reasons why is whether we know it or not is that we lack the trust in God and who he is and how he has promised things to us. We don't trust those things and we trust ourselves instead. And some of us are trying to manage our finances and marriage, manage our marriages and manage our relationships and managing all manner of things in life. And instead of trusting that God knows how to best deal with those things, we have said we can't trust him, and so we have to trust ourselves. Our problem this morning is trust. And this morning, I want to look at probably the most famous passage that uh, is given as to why we should trust God. Now, right away, when we go to Lamentations chapter 3, and we just sang a probably one of the most famous hymns that rehearses over and over again the words of this song, we think right away that, man, what a, what a great phrase. Great is thy faithfulness. And Jeremiah is going to speak of that. And we, we put that on our coffee mugs. We put it on our picture frames. We put that um, uh, in all kinds of places in our home. And it makes us feel good. And, and, and for many of us, if we were to ask, where does that passage come from? We wouldn't even know it's in the Bible. We would know that it's a part of a song and it speaks of God, but one of the things I want you to recognize this morning is the context of this song, or this verse, is a context of great pain and of great sorrow. You see, probably the hardest thing for us to do when we are hurting, when we're struggling, when all manner of issues and, and dilemmas are coming our way, is the issue of trust. 
in emergency situations, we need to be looking to someone else outside of ourselves. And so often, God is the last person we turn to. And today, Jeremiah is going to tell us, amidst the most difficult of circumstances, he is brought back to mind. He is brought back to a place that recognizes the faithfulness of God and why God should be the one in whom we trust in alone. So this morning, let's look at Lamentations chapter 3. I'm going to be looking at verses 19 through 24, but we're going to be looking at some other passages this morning as well. But let's start here. Remember my affliction, Jeremiah says, and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Let's pray. Father God, my prayer is is short and it is simple. Show us this morning your scripture, all that it says, all that it calls us to. Show us the scriptures so that in them we might see ourself, that we might see our self-reliance, that we might see the pride and the arrogance that grows within each and every one of us. In your scripture, Lord, show us who we are. Lord, show us our sin. Show us that in our, whether ignorance or willful disobedience, that instead of turning to you and trusting you, we have trusted and turned to other things. But Lord, lest we forget, in showing us your scripture, I pray that you would show us the Savior. That you would show us the all-faithful one. That you would show us the trustworthy one. That you would show us the one, though he was reviled and rejected, forgave and loved and poured out his mercies on the cross so that we might have life. Thank you for your word, Lord. Now let us be doers of it, not simply hearers, so that we may honor you in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Whether we want to admit it or not this morning, we live in an unfaithful world where it's hard to trust people. Each and every day, our lives are impacted by either our own unfaithfulness, our own failings, our own falterings, or the unfaithfulness of another. No doubt we've experienced broken promises that have been given with most most assurance that those things will come true, and they don't. We have said we would be places, and we're not. We have missed appointments. We have missed deadlines. We have seen or been on the receiving end of unmet expectations where you and another have said, yes, uh, we can do this, and we will do that, and one or the other fails to live up to what they said they were going to do, leaving the other one hanging The one that probably hurts the most is relational betrayal. If you were to Google the word unfaithful, it conjures up all kinds of searches regarding the issue of love and romance and the betrayal of the trust that is given between a man and a woman who are in love with one another. And it forms itself and even the little white lies that we cover up our own failings and struggles. We live in a world that lacks trustworthiness and faithful, uh, faithfulness. Recently in the magazine article, in the magazine periodical called Psychology Today, uh, the question is brought up, who can we trust? And the writer says this, trust should be easy. We do it every day. We trust other drivers on the road to stop when their lights turn red. We trust that the author, reporter, expert, and news correspondent whose work we read is giving us truth about the world as it is and how it is likely to be, we relax in that trust 
and feel informed. That is, until a fact checker comes along who challenges some part of the official version. Now, politicians not completely trustworthy, we've learned to live with that, right? So we've come to rely on the insights and forecasts of experts until we learn that the predictions of experts are about as correct as chance. How about media experts and opinionizers? It seems the more confident and convincing one seems to be, the less likely he is to be correct. She's nailing it. Oh boy. Preachers and teachers lost our trust long ago in a landslide of scandal, both sexual and financial. And while on the subject of financial, the very idea of trusting in banks and financial institutions would be hilarious, she says, if it didn't hurt so much to laugh. Okay, don't trust public experts, politicians, news reporters, religious or corporate leaders. But we can trust the people we know, can't we? And as a society, we do, and we marry. We we'll talk about the greatest commitment of trust that, that in a marriage. And many of us still do marry over and over again. Trusting love and desire alone to keep us together, divorce statistics notwithstanding. So she finishes up her article this way. We are let down by lovers, frustrated by public officials, Spun by historians, analysts, and authors. And before I have you turn to the other slide, just take a moment. And you can say she's right. We have been let down by people. We have been frustrated. People have not lived up to what they said they were going to do. And she finishes up in a crescendo and says, but there's at least one person we can trust and her answer is ourselves. Now here's the stupidity. Real quick, um, I don't know if I've shown you this. Let's do the universal sign of displeasure. Put your finger out, thumb out like this. Turn it around. Okay. She was doing so well. She was articulating the world that we live in, an unfaithful world. It is hard to find a trustworthy individual. It is hard to find someone who does what they say they're going to do in the time frame they say they're going to do it in. It is hard to find someone who is going to live up to the promises that they've made. It is hard to find someone who you give your life to who in turn will give you their life back without looking other places and betraying the trust that you've laid before them. It is hard to find that. And we live in a world that is saturated with unfaithfulness. But then she careens down the mountain out of control when she says, but at least you know who we can trust? Ourselves. So, so think about this, and by no means am I an expert, but let's just deal with her logic for a moment. Seven billion people are on the earth, and she's saying we can't trust any one of them, right? Can't trust them. But there's one person of the seven billion you can trust, and that is yourself. Well, wait a minute, aren't you a part of the seven billion? Aren't you also untrustworthy and unfaithful in the things that you do? You see, the logic doesn't work. And the problem is, is we've lived into a society, and we've been brought into a society that says, you know what, there may be a lot of untrustworthiness out there, there may be a lot of unfaithfulness out there, but at least you know that you are faithful, you are trustworthy, and here's the problem, there is none of us who are faithful. There is none of us who are completely trustworthy. And so we have to turn to someone else to depend on. Our dollar bills and our money say something that we as a country should uphold and we should honor and we should just marvel in, and that is in God we trust. He's the only one that lives out all of his promises. He's the only one who doesn't falter. He's the only one who never betrays. He is the only one that we can trust this morning. You see, when we fail to trust God and choose to go along with the world, we're going to run into a problem. And my friend in psychology today, 
will recognize, as she articulated in the first paragraphs of that article, the chaos we face. Because we can't trust people, because we've always got to be concerned if someone's going to fulfill their promise or be there when they say they're going to be there, chaos ensues. I want you to think about for a moment that we are stressed, we are heartbroken, we are troubled, and we have to ask the question, where does that come from? So tomorrow morning, the basis of your Monday, think about this for a moment, whether it's going to be a good Monday or a bad Monday, will be solely determined on whether people live up to what they said they were going to do, okay? Or if you are able to do that. So let's talk about this for a moment. If you wake up tomorrow and you get into your car, and you put the key into your car, and you turn the car over, and it goes... The car has not been faithful. You expect it, I put the key in, I turn it, it's going to start, it's going to get me from point A to point B. You go to work, and after you've gotten the car jump-started because of its unfaithfulness, you get to work, and you find yourself, or let's even start before that, you're driving to work on the expressway, and an individual cuts out in front of you and hits you. What have they done? They have been unfaithful in their following of good driving habits. So your car didn't start, you got hit on the way to work because someone was unfaithful, or they just messed up, they faltered, they weren't completely perfect, and so they've made a mistake. You get to work, and you find out the project that your partner's working on with you, and you've been working all weekend to get your side of it done. You find out they got the flu, or, or they chose to uh, go on a short weekend vacation, and they come in on Monday and say, my side of the project isn't done. But the problem is at 11 o'clock, you've got to present. And so now you find yourself having a bad day based on all of these different things that involve other people whose failings or falterings are a problem. And then you're at work and meeting goes a little longer, but that's okay. You didn't have anything planned until 7 o'clock rolls around and you forget there was a 5.30 basketball game you were supposed to be a part of. And now you recognize you're not on the receiving end of unfaithfulness. You are the instigator of unfaithfulness. You have forgotten. And again, it's not your fault. It's the human condition. We forget uh, that we need uh, to live up to our schedules. And so now our son or daughter's at the basketball game wondering where's mom or dad at. And they're let down and they feel like... You didn't care. You weren't there. You see, the basis of your day is determined on how faithful and trustworthy people are to you and how faithful and trustworthy you are to them. And quite frankly, we have a lot of bad days, don't we? We do. And because of that, we recognize we live in an unfaithful world. And and here's the thing. God did not intend that to be the case. God's plan for us, God's will for us, God's desire for us is that we would live in a world and in a society where things didn't fail, where commitments weren't broken, where lies weren't told, and in the garden for even what seemingly is a short period of time, man and woman lived in a perfect relationship with their God and a perfect relationship with other. Where, listen, nobody was let down. Nobody was betrayed. Nobody forgot things. Nobody faltered in things. It was a place of perfection. And now we live because of sin, whether our own or someone else's, whether because we carry the sin curse in our lives that cause us and and, and in some ways allow us to fall short of the glory that God desired and had for us and for Him, we find ourselves in chaos. And these chaotic lives lead to some things. First of all, it leads to a life of difficulty. It leads to a life of difficulty. The book of Lamentations, and we're doing a topical series. We don't do this very often. Uh, Most of our teaching, I'd say 98% of our teaching is verse-by-verse exposition through a book of the Bible. But for these next couple months, we're going to be doing something a little more topical. 
And, and one of the struggles with topical preaching is we don't get the context as much as we would want. We're not building out of a text. And so we have to spend a little time each week talking about what's exactly going on. And what we've got, and it's easy to find out the context of Lamentations, is a lament. It's a lament. This is not um, a time of great celebration. This isn't a time of great joy. This is a time of great sorrow, of great sadness. A lament is a time of great regret and, and, and sadness and sorrow that, that enters our body and exits our body, if you will, through weeping and crying and mourning. So what in the world would... Jeremiah be lamenting about he calls himself and he is called the weeping prophet and so he lived during a very difficult time Jeremiah lived about six centuries before Christ and during the six centuries before Christ we see that the children of Israel have been an unfaithful people they have betrayed not only one another but they've betrayed their God They've pursued other gods and pursued other uh, pursuits instead of God. And God has taken his hand of protection off of the children of Israel. And he removes his protection and he sends the blasted Assyrian and Babylonian armies to come and to destroy. The pictures that are started in in Lamentations chapter 1 is the idea, what happened to all the people? If you just turn back a page, he says, what happened to all the people? The streets are empty. That which was bustling just moments ago is now a place of tragedy. The best way to explain this is to remember and and rewind back to the moments before 9-11. Tens of thousands of people walking the streets of New York. And in a matter of a couple hours, what was a bustling city filled with people was now a place filled with ashes and smoke and sorrow and fear and anxiety. This was the city of Jerusalem. It laid in waste and there was nobody around. It was eerily quiet because destruction had come its way. And so we see that the nation of Israel, who should be living under great times of relationship with their God, now find themselves living very difficult times. Notice what he says. We're just going to kind of work through chapter 3. These, our lives became difficult. Theirs were as well. Notice when he says, I am the man, he is speaking as a representative for his people, as the prophet of God. So you could say, we are those who have seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. God has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Let's just stop there for a moment. Jeremiah is saying because of the failings of the people, the road that they're going to experience will not be an easy one. It's a road of difficulty. It's a road where nothing will go as it should. Notice he says, instead of our flesh and our skin being vibrant and healthy, literally it's wasting away. Instead of us having our faculties, we find ourselves with broken bones. We have this difficulty. We, he wants us to move ahead. Jeremiah says, we want to move forward. But the hand of God is heavy upon us. It's hard to move. And I want you to recognize this morning, that is where we find ourselves in humanity as people under the curse of sin. We could have had it easy. We could have had a perfect relationship with God, but we sinned and we continue to sin. And the hand of God's judgment is upon us. And instead of life being full of joy and peace and and contentment and all good things, we live a life. We live in a garden that literally fights against us. The ground that should produce fruit produces thorns. Work that should produce great satisfaction causes us to sweat. 
The life that we should live in relationship with others that should complete us literally tears us apart. Everything that we could have had in perfection with God, we have chosen sin and gotten the difficult life. And each and every one of us experience that in some level of another. And again, remember, we, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but just so you're on board with me, that doesn't mean your life is difficult because you've had a particular sin. It, life is difficult because man is born to troubles. We live in a fallen world. Number two, life is difficult, but notice also life leads to disappointment, verses 5 through 9. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. And he has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Because of the unfaithfulness in our world and our own failings, we will have many disappointments. Our bodies will fail us. Our bodies will fail us and we'll go to the doctor and the doctor will say, listen, you've got this malignancy. The doctor will say, uh, you've got this syndrome. The doctor will tell us over and over again as we grow older and we recognize it ourselves, we aren't what we used to be. And that brings forth disappointments. That brings forth a sense of our frailty. And notice it goes on, and and what it says is not only will life be difficult, but you're going to try to do things, and it's not going to work. Notice he says, and this is very important, he has besieged me. I can't go anywhere. I can't escape. He says he has enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. The Babylonian people were very well known for their creative ways of killing their enemies. And scholars tell us, both secular and sacred, they tell us that the Babylonians had a very special way. They loved to kill the most hated of enemies. It was long, it was arduous, and really it was heart-wrenching. What they would do is they would build these cisterns that went deep into the ground. And they were walled with stones, and you'll see the reference of that in Jeremiah's writings. And it was only big enough that literally you could put a person into that hole, and they couldn't move. Now, I know some of you are freaking out right now, right? You've been in an MRI or an elevator, and you're like, that's bad enough, right? Think about you are left in a cistern where you are standing like this, the wall is here, the wall is there, you can't move, you can't do anything. All you can do is scream. And this would go on, scholars say, for days. Screaming and screaming and screaming. Nowhere to move, nowhere to adjust, nowhere to uh, move arms or, or your other faculties. There's no place to do it. And it would literally suffocate people. People's hearts, literally, scholars would say, would melt. They just would give up and they would die. And when they heard, no more screaming, they would pull you out of the cistern because they had you connected to a heavy chain. This is what Jeremiah is talking about. And he's saying, and we can see that life is going to lead us to despair if we try to do this on our own. To despair. We left to our own devices. We're going down a road that's no good. We can cry for help, but notice God says, if you're not going to live for me, if you're not going to walk with me, if you're not going to pursue me, then your selfish prayers I'm going to shut out of my ears. I'm not going to listen. Notice he goes on with regards to despair and he says there's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He has turned aside my steps and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and sent me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. Notice what he says. My soul is bereft of peace. 
I have forgotten what happiness is. And my, so, my, so I say my endurance has perished. Notice what he says. So has my hope from the Lord. When we trust ourselves or trust other people, We're going to learn life is going to be difficult. We're going to learn that we're going to be disappointed. And at some point, we are going to be filled, maybe not today, but after a long life of this with despair. Because what we will come to recognize is when we trust people and they let us down, people will laugh. People will taunt. If you've ever fallen for a scheme, if you've ever had someone betray you, the deep thought you have is, do people think... Do they laugh? Do they respond? And how could that person not have seen it? You see, Israel was the laughing stock of the of the nations around because while boasting a great relationship with God, they had no relationship with God. They were devoid of a relationship with God. And as a result of that, their enemies mocked them. Where's your God? Where is your comfort? Where is your help? And the problem was, is they were trusting in other things. They were trusting in themselves. They were trusting in kings. They were trusting in their military might. They were trusting in their riches instead of trusting in God. And now a problem had come that none of those things could stop. And now their people said, where are your armies? Where are your chariots? Where are uh, all of the things that you put your trust in? Where are they? And Israel says in one loud voice, we have forgotten, it has been a long time, we have forgotten what happiness is. We have forgotten where our endurance was. And here's the thing, what they say in verse 18, our lives are so bad that even if we turn to God, we're not even sure he could take care of it. Can I just tell you right now, some of you are there this morning, Some of you are there this morning where you've given up hope. Some of you are there this morning because things have taken place. Your life has not gone the way you've wanted to. You've put your trust in other things and people have failed you or you have found yourself faltering and you're wondering, listen, I don't even know what it means to be happy anymore. I am bereft of peace. I haven't had peace in years. I can't imagine what people are saying about me behind my back. And really, even if I wanted to, I'm not sure God could take care of this. Well, why does this happen? Notice it takes place for different reasons. It takes place for different reasons. Why do hardships happen? Well, we experience hardships and troubles and trials for really two major reasons. Number one, we live in a fallen world. And we live in fallen bodies. And so we are going to forget. We are going to falter. We are going to fail whether we mean to or not. This might be of some surprise to you, but I am not a perfect man. And because I'm not a perfect man, I'm not a perfect husband. There should be one amen that comes out from the congregation today. I'm not a perfect father. Three amen should come out. I'm not a perfect pastor. You all should say amen. Okay? Now, is it because I don't want to be? No. Who doesn't want to to pursue perfection? My desire isn't to be bad in those things. I love my wife. I love my children. And yes, whether you don't believe me or not, I love you. And and here's the crazy thing. I'm going to fail you. Because I'm a broken individual. And our hardships are just a basis of of living with broken people who are going to fail, who are going to falter, who are going to struggle through life. And my failings and my falterings are going to impact those around me. So we're these little tremors of failings and falterings that are impacting the lives of people closest to us. It's going to happen. But that's not Israel's fault. Israel's problem isn't that they just failed or faltered because they were an imperfect nation. They falter and they fail because they willfully disobeyed against God. And some of us right now are experiencing the heavy hand of God and experiencing uh, a lack of joy, a lack of peace, a lack of happiness. Because instead of trusting God, we have turned, notice number two, to other things. And what are those things we've turned to? Counterfeits. People and things are advertising themselves. Just as the nation of Israel was experiencing counterfeits, worship the gods of Baal. 
Worship the gods of the Amorites and, and all of the other surrounding nations. Build for yourself a kingdom unto yourself. Don't worry about God. What has God done for you lately? It's all about you. It's not God. And they bought into that. And, and so have we. But our pursuit of, uh, of counterfeits is very uh, different and you get to the specifics of it. Notice our trust is in products. How many of us go and and read in magazines or or see on social media or watch on TV a product and they will all say the same thing, whether it's weight loss, whether it's to build muscle, whether it's to get rich, whatever the product may be, make you look beautiful, it will, what do they say? Change your life. And how many of us have bought products With the thought that if I take this pill or follow these principles, it will make my life different. We buy products because we put more trust in the products than we do our creator. And we buy into it thinking, if I do this, then this will happen. Be very careful. Does that mean, listen, does that mean that products can't do things to help us? Yes, they can. But we got to be careful that our trust is not in those things, but in God. Number two, we we buy into and trust in products. Notice we trust in our plans. And I'm talking to our my entrepreneurial friends who are out there always dreaming, always visioning, and I'm there with you, and I love thinking, how can I do this, and and how can I do that, and, and what will happen, and I've come to realize as I'm getting older, that everything you write down on a piece of paper, though it looks good there, doesn't always look good in reality. Amen? And so we say, well, I'm going to do this, and we're going to do that. And we write up all these plans and these ideas, and we assume that once they go down on that napkin, once they go down on that piece of paper, or once they get into the computer, they're as good as going to happen. But we recognize and know the Bible says, hey, don't say you're going to go for a year to this city or that city, make this money, do this business. But if the Lord wills, then we will do this and we will do that. Why do we need to be careful with our plans? Because Jesus says, no man knows what a day might bring. So you're planning for the next year, and little do you know, next week, something's going to happen in your life that will make that plan non-existent. Now listen to me, that doesn't mean we don't plan. But what it means is be careful that you hold your plans with an open hand saying, listen Lord, I trust you, I don't trust these plans. So we go on this vacation and we say it's going to change our marriage. We go to this trip that we're going to invest all this money in and it's going to bring happiness. And and what does it do? It, It leaves us hanging. Things don't go the way we want them to. Products and plans. Notice people. This one is subtle and we see it so often with love. We believe the person we love will complete us. We believe the person is going to bring us happiness, that they'll take away all the bad things in our lives and only bring in good things in our life. We think people will do that. And how many unhappy singles are out there right now who have sought to alleviate their unhappiness by entering into a marriage with another unhappy person trying to alleviate their unhappiness? And two people who are unhappy coming together thinking the other is going to make them happy doesn't work. And so if you trust in that my spouse is going to complete me, my spouse is going to take care of me, you are going to be disappointed. And listen, no matter how good your spouse is, they're not perfect. Some people have had children. And they've said our heart is empty and we want children and we're not happy until we have children. And and again, that doesn't mean you can't desire those things and want those things. But when we trust that that thing is going to bring us contentment, bring us joy, bring us peace, we're going to learn, boy, if I could tell you some things from the Badal home this week, we're going to learn children bring their own troubles. That you might have been a little happier had they not been there at some moments. I'm just being real with you right now. Okay? And the issue is not desiring isn't a bad thing. The issue is trusting, putting your hope in something that, listen, is 
altogether unfaithful. We're unfaithful. We're going to let each other down. Finally, i got to move on. Possessions and portfolios. We're going to address these in the day to come. But my goodness, we think all the time money will fix everything. And it doesn't. No amount of money will bring Steve Jobs back. And he was a billionaire ten times over. Money's not going to bring a wayward child back. Money's not going to fix a marriage. Money can do some things. But the Bible tells us in, uh, in his letters to Timothy that he says many um, people have plunged themselves into destruction and ruin for the pursuit of getting rich. And so we think, I buy this house, it will complete me, it will fix me. I buy this car and I'll lose 50 pounds as soon as I sit in it. I need this outfit, I need this thing. And we laugh and we say, listen, but at the heart of the marketing scheme is that advertisers want you to think that your life is going to be a whole lot better when you're watching in high def 60 inches of the newscast, not 46. I got to have that. My life will be better as a result. And we put our faith and our trust in things, in money, and listen, it will rust, it will erode, Your youngest son will take a Thor hammer and throw it and break it. Again, I'm just being real with you this morning. Okay? Stop putting your trust in these things. So where do we put our trust? We put our trust in what we see are the characteristics of a faithful God. And we'll be talking about this in days to come. So I know some will say, wait a minute, you spent a lot on us, not much on God. Because we're going to talk over the next two weeks about who God is and how we pursue God. But let's just say a couple things about God. God is faithful. We are faithless, the Bible says. God is faithful. How is he faithful? He is faithful in the way he acts. Write these two things down. He is faithful in the way he acts. That is seen in his character and in his conduct. Okay? His character. He is immutable. Immutable means he does not change. What that means is God never, listen, wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. God never is late. God never sleeps through the alarm. He's always on time. You never have to wonder, is... is Happy God going to show up or mad God going to show up? Is disheveled God going to show up or organized God going to show up? God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can trust in Him. We can rely on Him because He is the ruler that shows and proves and declares and demonstrates total reliability and trustworthiness. A definition was used that I love it. It says the following of our faithful God. God's faithfulness means that everything he says and does is certain. He is 100% reliable, 100% on time. He does not fail. He does not forget. He does not falter. He does not change. He does not disappoint. He says what he means. He means what he says. And therefore, everything that he does, and therefore does, I'm sorry, and therefore does everything he says he will do. He does it. He is faithful. We are told he is everywhere. We are told he is all-powerful. We are told he is all-knowing. And because of that, we can rely on this faithful God. Numbers twenty-three nineteen. Let me just read this for you very quickly just to hear what the Lord says about himself. Numbers twenty-three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. God doesn't do that. Has he said, and and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Let me give you another passage, Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 9. He says the following. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of of all peoples. 
but it is because the Lord loves you in keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commands to a thousand generations. God in his character is all faithful. Notice in the ways he lives. Now this is where our text comes in. How does he live? By showing his steadfast love. Verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is the faithfulness of God. Write these things down and we'll, we'll address these in weeks to come. God's faithfulness is ongoing. It is steadfast. So write down ongoing. It is steadfast. It never stops. It never ceases, the text says. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. Every morning, God's mercies are new. You, you want to know, and, and some of you, half of the crowd will not know what I'm going to talk about. But one of the funniest TV episodes of, of human history, of TV history, is I Love Lucy. I lost half of you just now. And you'll remember, I love Lucy. Lucy and Ethel are working in a chocolate factory. And remember the conveyor belt with the chocolate kisses running down the conveyor belt? And they're supposed to be taking the chocolate kisses and putting them in, into the boxes, into the boxes. But it keeps going faster and faster. And so what is their response? We'll start eating them. And so they start putting them in their mouth. Then Lucy just starts throwing them. She doesn't know what to do with them. Listen, the mercies of God are saw on a conveyor belt speeding along. You can't even get all of them. That should bring you hope this morning. They just keep coming and coming and coming and coming and you are overwhelmed by them. And listen, this is very important. If you're like, I don't see them, it's not because God ain't given them. It's because you have put your trust and your eyes on other things that you're not seeing right before you. The mercies and steadfast love of God that is overwhelming. Write that down, overwhelming. It's ongoing, it never ceases, it won't stop. And it is overwhelming. And we need to praise that. The words he declares. So we've got this Bible in front of us. This love letter written by a faithful God. And what can we do with it? We can trust every word that is said. Every word. God is wholly reliable. There are more than 3,600 promises in the Bible. The majority of them are to us to his people and we have seen thousands of them already fulfilled and there still are a handful left to be fulfilled and the question is God who is faithful who has proven himself over and over again has promised some things and the question this morning is will you trust yourself and your friends and your family and other people and other things that will fail you over and over and over again? Or will you today make the decision, I trust in God and God alone? So a choice needs to be made. Write this down and we'll close with this. What are you going to do? We can continue to put our hope and faith in other things or we can turn to God. If we're going to turn to God, here's how we do it. Number one, repent of your own, your own unfaithfulness. We need to repent of our own unfaithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, When we are faithless, God is, help me out, faithful. So we are a faithless people, and we need to repent of that. God, I have wronged you. God, I have wronged other people. God, I have wronged myself. And I come to you the only one who has been faithful and trustworthy. And I uh, put myself down at the mercy of the court, and I say... Please forgive me. I repent of them. I'm not going to live in a life of faithlessness anymore. Number two, and this is a very practical one. Remember our frailness. My dad used to say all the time, we would have a, something I would want done. The boys in my family growing up would want done. And we would ask about it the week beforehand. And my dad would always say, not this weekend, but Monday. We'll do it on Monday. It took me a lot of years of therapy to enjoy Mondays again. 
Because my dad would inevitably, as a flawed man, a great dad, a great dad, listen, I love my dad, but he would promise things that he wasn't able to fulfill. Monday had its own problems, right? And Monday would come with its own things and, and the promise he made that he was going to do it. And maybe some Mondays we'd get around to it. But, but it became a joke. We'll do that Monday. Dad, when are we going to Disney World? We'll go Monday. That'll work. And what I've learned is I've caught that sin from my father as well. I boast things, I, I say things I'm going to do and I don't live up to them. Recognize when you plan, recognize when you promise, recognize, listen, salesmen of Village Bible Church, recognize when you make that sale that you're only as good as your finite body is. That you will fail and you will falter and be honest about that and declare that and say, listen, I don't know what's going to come, I don't know what's going to happen. Because I'm a finite individual. A question was brought up very quickly in one of our congregational meetings with Plano uh, during this adoption process. And someone said, tell us what's going to happen. What, how, how successful is this going to be? And my response was, I don't know. It could fail tomorrow. I have no idea what will happen. I'm a broken, finite man. I have no idea. We can make plans, but we've got to give them to the Lord. And so when you make plans, recognize you are a broken, flawed individual and and be more open-handed in your planning and your living of life. Number three, rejoice in His forgiveness. So I've told you you are a faithless individual. Take that, let that sink deep into your soul, and also then be reminded you have a faithless pastor. But here's the awesome thing. 1 John 1, 9 says, when we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us of our unfaithfulness, our sin, and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Praise God. Though we have blown it, we have one who lived a perfect life, who lived a faithful life, who is the one who will come riding a horse called Faithful and True, and he will bring us into a full understanding of our redemption on that last day. He is the one who has saved us by his faithful and true blood on the cross of Calvary. And we can rejoice in that. And number four, rest in that faithfulness. When life throws you a curve, when life is difficult, when you don't know what to do, verse 21 says, but this I call to mind. Call what to mind? The faithfulness of God. Though life, you have no idea what's going to come this week, you know one thing to be true. God is on his throne, and God has everything under his control. And everything that he has planned, he will bring out to fruition. And we get to trust and rest and hope and rely. And we get to rejoice in a God who loves us, who we are told by his promised word, who has wonderful things planned for us. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has planned for his people. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in other things. Trust alone, wholly, in God. And find your hope in him.